RUF is a Christian ministry on campus. We're here for Christians and non-Christians. We're here to help you figure out what it means to follow Jesus while you're in college. If you have, um, you know, things you're going through right now, uh, people text me every week and ask me to help them think biblically about something they're working through, whether it be a relationship or some conflict or just a random thing. Um, I'm available for that. I love doing that, so reach out anytime. Anna's the same way. She loves having those conversations. Uh, my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm the campus minister here, and uh, I'm not a good person, but Jesus loves me, and he loves you, and that changes things. And one of the ways it changes things, one of the ways it changes our lives is that Jesus calls us into a different way of life. Tonight we're going to talk about how he actually calls us into a battle. How Jesus calls us into a battle. Over Feb break, I watched uh, the first season of The Last of Us. Who's been watching The Last of Us? Or is that just me? Seriously, just me? Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> and I'll explain it to you. It's a, it's a zombie TV series. Um, and you've probably seen a scene like this in lots of different zombie movies. But like first, first episode of the season... You know, everybody's just kind of chilling inside, doing their normal life, their normal thing, watching TV, watching a movie, whatever. And then you kind of start hearing in the back, like through the windows, you start kind of seeing like thing, weird things happen, but they don't notice. And then you like hear a siren, but they don't notice. And outside the house, things are going like nuts, like choppers are flying overhead, people are dying, it's getting crazy. But the people inside are still just kind of like doing the normal thing and the tension kind of builds. Uh, their neighborhood turns into a war zone. I'm not going to like spoil it for you, although it sounds like maybe you guys aren't going to watch this series, which is okay. Uh, most people die. It's about zombies. You kind of expect that. Only a few people survive, though. The people who survive are the ones who look out the window and realize that they're living in a war zone. They're living in a battle zone, and they take decisive action. Tonight in our passage in Revelation 12, which can we just admit, that's a weird passage. Right? We've got dragons, we've got pregnant ladies in the sky giving birth. It's intense. In this passage, God is pulling back the curtain to show you something that you might have missed and to invite you into decisive action. He's showing you that you're living on a battlefield, that your life needs to change. So this week, we're invited, it's almost like we're invited into the war room of heaven to get clarity on this war of the ages that's been happening throughout the entire Bible story and throughout our lives. And we're going to receive the mission that God has for us tonight. So where we're going to go, it's another five-pointer, so get excited. The woman, the child, the dragon, the war, and your mission. The woman, the child, the dragon, the war, and your mission. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing truth that we need to hear. Thank you for revealing Jesus like we've never seen him before. Thank you for revealing to us our own lives. Please do this tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Speak through me by your Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> okay. The woman. So this is verse 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So I think... Y'all are mostly familiar with this by now. We're already expecting, because this is apocalyptic literature, this is not talking about an actual woman who's actually levitating in space. This is a symbol, a picture telling us something about something else. We're going to find out what it's talking about. But it's representing, it's telling us what something else is like. 
So let's see what, what it's like. This woman is majestic. She's beautiful. She wears the sun like a dress. Um, I don't even know how to imagine that. It sounds awesome. It's also God-like language. Because Psalm 104, 2, it says, God wraps himself in light like a garment. So in some way, this woman is almost being compared to God. She stands upon the moon. So like it's cool, beautiful light. Stands in contrast to the fiery heat of the sun, her, her dress, her robe. She's bathed in the light of the two most beautiful things in the sky, the sun and the moon. On her head, these 12 stars. It's like they come to just orbit around her majesty. It's a crown, like, think about it. Better than any crown any earthly king, queen or king has ever had, right? So this woman, she's beautiful, exalted, majestic, regal. What does she represent? We have two indicators, two clues in our passage. So first, the number 12, the number of the stars on her head, should make us think again of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs. And that's actually supported by Genesis 37. This is kind of cool. Genesis 37, the 12 patriarchs of the tribes of Israel are actually compared to 12 stars in a prophetic dream. So there you have it. So that's the first clue. Second clue, look at the condition of this woman. What's going on with her? She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. That's intense. Who does this make you think of? I think for most of us, our minds immediately go to Mary, the mother of Jesus, which makes sense, um, especially because uh, like God in this passage that, um, that we just read, God protects this woman in Revelation 12. He like keeps her safe from the dragon, right? And that's also how God protected Mary and Joseph. You know, when Herod was planning to kill all the babies under two in the area of Bethlehem, uh, God warned them in a dream and told them to like run away, which they did, kept them safe. So that kind of like lines up. But also, this passage also makes us think of Eve, the first mother, right? Like of all humanity. Because the language is similar to the curse pronounced on her and all women when she rebelled against God. Adam rebelled too, so he gets his own curse. The devil gets his own curse too. We'll get there. But just for now, I see the connection. God told her, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So there's this connecting line from Genesis 3 all the way back through the chapter of the Bible all the way forward to almost the end of the Bible, Revelation 12. We're going to see that connecting line get a lot of traffic tonight. So the woman also represents Eve, Mary and Eve, but not just them. Consider the fact that throughout the Bible, God speaks of his church, his people, as a woman that he cares for. God called the prophet Hosea to, to like live out this enacted parable where he says, Hosea, Go to this woman who's an unfaithful woman. She's a prostitute. She's not faithful. Marry her. Be faithful to her. Love her. As a lived example of the love that God has for his people, his church. God wants us to imagine ourselves as in a way like a woman that he loves and cares for. You can read about that in Hosea in the Old Testament. But then later on, we see in another way that this woman also represents the whole church. In verse 17, it says... The devil goes off to attack the rest of her offspring, right? By context, we know that that's talking about the rest of God's people, us, like God's, the church throughout history, which the church throughout history is obviously descended from more than just Eve, more than just Mary. So in a way, this woman represents God's church. Okay, a lot of explanation. I think that this woman in Revelation 12 
is mainly representing the church, like capital C, bigger than any one denomination, um, past, present, future, everyone who's been united with Christ or ever will be united with Christ. And this woman is showing us what the church is like, you know, how she's attacked by the devil and how she's kept safe by God. So don't miss this, you guys. When we read about the woman here, you're reading about yourself. You're reading about yourself as part of God's people. When you hear God describe the woman, you hear God describe you, us, in collective terms. We are an us. We are the church, God's people. So you're right in there with Eve, with Mary, as you read about this woman. And you belong there because of the work of Christ. Look at this. She's, you're wearing divine garments just like her. Remember, God wraps himself in light like, a gar, light like a garment. She's wearing the sun as a robe. Like Jesus is the one who gives us his clothes, his righteousness to wear because he loves us. So that's the imagery that we're seeing. We are, in a way, identified with this woman. So put a pin in that, okay? We're going to come back to that. Put a pin in that. That's who the woman is. That's who it represents. But now you see about this, this baby, this child. Who's the baby? What's going on there? And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's really, really intense. Okay, we're like... Hang with, hang with the intensity of the imagery here. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So I know those questions about the dragon. We'll come back to the dragon for now. When it says, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, it's actually quoting a prophecy from Psalm 2. The whole psalm is this beautiful, big prophecy about how all the nations in the world are going to eventually come and bow to King Jesus. Right? I'll just read this one section about the rod of iron. It says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's talking about Jesus. It's talking about King Jesus when he comes back and rules over this world. So, when Revelation 12 takes up that language, it's telling us this child the woman has is Jesus. The child born of the woman is Jesus. Case in point, very next verse we see him ascending into heaven. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's speaking of his ascension. And it's very normal, actually, like that kind of speeds through, like Jesus is born straight to his ascension. It speeds through his whole life, doesn't even mention it. Very normal for apocalyptic literature to uh, fast forward, reverse, in order to make a point. And the point is, the dragon tried to kill Jesus, but he failed. Jesus was kept safe. Don't miss something incredible here, Okay. This is kind of like, it gets almost mystical, the beautiful thing that God is showing us here. Normally in the Bible, we are told that we need to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. We're the ones who need to be born again, right? Born of water and blood, right? Born of the blood of Jesus. He's the one, in a way, that gives birth to us. But here in this passage, Jesus is born through the anguish of the woman who represents, yes, Mary, yes, Eve, but the woman who is the church. Jesus is born through the church. That's kind of crazy. Like, what's going on here? I think what's happening is God is revealing himself as unashamed to call backwards and wandering and unfaithful Israel, people like us, his mother. 
God is revealing himself is willing to choose for his bloodline idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes. Look up the, the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Those people are in there. Not good people like us. God is revealing himself as so committed to entering into the pain of his people that he enters a birth canal <laughs> to heal us, to conquer our enemy. Is there any story that's better than this, than a God who would do this for us? That's our king. That's our general. We ought to be ready to storm the beaches of hell for him. Led by him, the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. So let's look at the enemy that is doomed, the enemy that cannot stand against this king. Who does the dragon represent? The dragon, verse 3 and 4. Okay, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, that means crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Who is this? Verse 9 actually tells us. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the dragon is the serpent. Serpent is Satan. If you didn't know, the Bible tells us that Satan is a created personal being, an angel, who rebelled against God, turned against him, broke bad, got, uh, you know, fell from the glory he was made for, took some other angels with him, called demons. So that's who Satan is, and the dragon is him. So he hates God. He hates everything God does. He hates everything God made. He hates you, and he's waging war against God and his creation, against us, his people. That's scary. This is telling us the dragon, the devil, is your enemy. He wants what's bad for you. Notice how verse 14 refers to the dragon as the serpent, the snake. Think back to Genesis 3. Some of you know this story. That connecting line from Genesis 3 again. How did the devil show up in the perfect world God created to deceive as a snake, the serpent? Here in Revelation 12, same old snake shows up. We see what he's really like. He's this ugly, malignant, wicked, powerful, domineering, violent dragon. Worst of all, Later in the passage, verse 17, he goes off to wage war on the rest of the woman's offspring. That's us in the modern day right now. So this is saying we have an enemy on the loose. This is saying, it's like identifying for us so much of the contention, the difficulty that we feel in our lives is sourced in the devil. So this brings us to the next point, okay, the war. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So I love this, right? In the moment we find out who this dragon is, we also find out that he's been conquered. The one who's attacking us, actually, he's doomed. He's been conquered. He's literally been thrown down. To understand the significance of that, we need to see the beginning of the war and guess where it is? Genesis 3. Satan showed up. Okay, so Genesis 3. Satan shows up in God's newly created perfect world. Everything is perfect except Satan's there. And he deceives, he lies to Adam and Eve, inciting them to rebellion against God. He, and God tells them what's going to happen because they do this. He tells them about the war that's just beginning. He speaks to Satan and he says, I'll put en enmity, it means like contention, strife. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice how this predicts exactly what Revelation 12 is saying, guys. 
The devil is trying to hurt the child of the woman. Exactly what said in Genesis 3. There's one story throughout the whole Bible. You see it playing out in the Bible over and over. <clears throat> you see it in the infertility plaguing the family tree preceding Jesus in the book of Genesis. Remember all those women who were infertile couldn't have babies until God miraculously gives them children? This is Satan trying to prevent Jesus' birth. You see Satan at work as the Egyptians killed the babies of the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Satan trying to cut off the family line of Jesus. When Jesus is born and Satan realized he'd failed, like, oh shoot, he actually was born. What do I do? You see him incite Herod to, like I already mentioned, basically commit mass abortion genocide of all the boys under two years old in the area around Bethlehem, Matthew 2. And then at the end of Jesus' life, Satan thought that he'd won, right? By uh, getting the Jews and Romans to collaborate to kill Jesus. Plot twist, though. Jesus' death is actually the way that he makes it to the throne, right? Back to Revelation 5, the slain lamb standing on the throne Satan didn't win at all. And because he didn't win, Satan, it says, has been banished from heaven. Which is great news because heaven's the control room, right? Heaven is where God is. That's where Satan used to accuse you before God. He used to mention your name and say, look at what this person just did. Can you believe the way they are, how they're not following you? They do not deserve your love. You should kick them out. He can't do that anymore. He can't, he's been kicked out. He's no, he has no audience with God anymore because he's been thrown down by the work of Jesus. And that phrase, thrown down, is actually the most commonly occurring phrase in the whole chapter, in the, in the Greek. Over and over we hear Satan's been thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. Remember two weeks ago in Revelation 20 where it says the devil's been chained? Talking about the same thing. It may be hard to believe when we look around us, right? And we'll get to that. But God's word is clear. Jesus has already conquered the devil. In the epic struggle between the family line of the woman and the family line of the snake, Jesus wins. He won when he was born of a virgin. He won when he resisted all Satan's temptations and lived a perfect life. He won when he died on the cross to take away all the guilty stains that Satan accuses you for. He won when he rose from the dead, stamping an expiration date on Satan's greatest weapon, death. He won when he ascended to Satan's place, to the place where Satan's not even allowed anymore, a place where Satan used to be, but he's been kicked out of the throne room of heaven. The war has been won, right? Like, this is good news. We know that there's not any debate or question about, like, is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be Satan? We know who won. Jesus won. He's chained and he's limited like a junkyard dog. And that's why heaven proclaims in verse 10, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice. That's the good news. The bad news is the junkyard dog has been chained in our front yard. Woe to you, O earth and sea! For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us, you guys. So for the time being, our world, which God owns, it's his world, and like he put us here, it's our world, but it's occupied by Satan. It's occupied by the devil. God's creation that he loves so much and he's never going to give it up for the time being is enemy territory for us. It's under his sway. And that's why we're living in a war. 
It's like we're living behind enemy lines. You can see it playing out all around us. The, the, the devil through his angels, aka demons, and through the people that he deceives, which all of us at times are prone to be deceived by him, he's wreaking havoc. Uh, his hand is in war, corruption, injustice, racism, human trafficking, global unrest. He has a hand in the temptations you faced, the sins you can't get rid of. You know, the, the things that you wish that you could just get rid of so you could focus on following Jesus and loving your neighbor. He doesn't want you to do that. Did you think that it was all just you? That like, the reason it was so hard to read your Bible and pray and be good to other people is just because you're a really terrible person? Actually, the Bible is saying like, the devil is making it hard for you. Which makes this fact that we have an enemy, that he's active, makes our world enemy territory for us. So how are we supposed to live in enemy territory? What are we supposed to do different knowing this? Like, even though like, we know Jesus is coming back, we know that he will one day conquer, but right now we've got this problem of like, we can't just waltz through our lives ignoring the enemy that is coming to attack us. How do we live differently? So I want to start talking about our mission by talking about somebody who did this beautifully. And a lot of you know this name, I hope, Corrie ten Boom. Okay, so Corrie ten Boom is this Dutch lady she lives in the Netherlands, and uh, her dad's a watchmaker. She's a normal Christian lady, very normal family, uh, and then the Nazis invade, right, and occupy the Netherlands, and stuff gets really bad for everybody, especially for the Jews. Now, she's not a Jew. She's a Christian. Most of the Christians around her, most of the so-called Christians around her and everybody else, they just focused on kind of surviving, living their lives, pacifying the Nazis, informing on their neighbors, you know, taking bribes, making bribes, doing whatever they had to do to survive this occupation, which you can understand, right? Like, that's an intense thing to have to live through. But that's not, that's not what she did. She didn't try to make herself comfortable. She hid Jews in her house, right? These people that were, the Nazis were trying to kill, she opened up her home to them, and they created secret compartments, and they hid them at great risk to themselves and their own lives. And they saved dozens, maybe more than dozens of Jews, which is awesome. Eventually, you know, they're found out, and she gets sent to a concentration camp. Most of her family died. She survives. Incredible story of forgiveness in the rest of her life, but focus on her willingness in the midst of Nazi rule to do the uncomfortable, hard thing and say, no, 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 the Nazis aren't in charge. Jesus is in charge, right? I know that the devil is occupying this place right now. I'm going to live for a different kingdom. You can live a luminous life. Your life can be an outpost of the kingdom of heaven behind enemy lines. A light not hid beneath a basket. A shining beacon of hope in occupied territory. How? Two ways, guys. People say that Christianity is a religion of peace. It's not. It's not a religion of peace. It's a religion of peace towards others. It's a religion of not killing other people. It's a religion of loving your enemies. It's also a call to violence, to waging war on your own sin. On all the ways the devil would love to get you away from God and claim you for his own. The call of the cross is the call to put your own sins to death. John Owen, English, old, 1600s, Christian theologian guy, he wrote on this. He like, says it better than anybody else. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He said the wise Christian never thinks his sins are dead because they're quiet, but labors to give them new wounds, new blows every day. When's the last time you dealt your sin a wound? Some of you are like, this week, awesome, praise God. Some of you are like, ah. <laughs> this is a call to warfare. 
to deal your sin new wounds. Don't get fooled. Don't get tricked by the devil. Don't get fooled by the things that he tempts you with. Get violent against your sin. That's your mission. Second thing, guys. How can you be a beacon of light? How can you have this luminous life like Corrie ten Boom? We live in Nazi Germany, but everywhere you go, every classroom, every workplace, every dorm room, every summer job, every final you take, all of it disputed territory, right? The devil has laid claim to it. So has Jesus. Whose army are you going to fight for? What would it look like for you to make your life, your home, your dorm room, right? Your car, your assignment, your workplace, an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, a testament to your true citizenship, a symbol spray painted on the walls of Gotham City that there's another king coming, that the devil will not hold sway forever, that actually the true king is coming and there's some who are still loyal to him. Every single time you treat someone with love and grace that they do not deserve, that's a signpost to the kingdom. Every single time the person that everyone else is canceling and saying that person's trash, never talk to them again, and you're actually willing to talk to them, sitting next to them, that's not normal. That's not how the devil does things. It's a signpost to the kingdom of heaven. Have you been following Jesus for a while and you're like, yeah, I kind of get the whole gospel thing. I kind of believe all of it. You're looking for like a new challenge, a fresh way to live your life. Like, what's the next thing Jesus has for me? This is it, you guys. Advance against the gates of hell set up all around you. Put on the whole armor of God found in Ephesians 6. Read that tonight. Talk about warfare. Ephesians 6, the armor of God. Put that on. You can't lose, guys. Because the devil may take the day. He has taken some days. He's taken a lot of days from a lot of us. But Jesus takes the field at the end. Jesus is the one who wins at the end. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you show you pull back the curtain. You show us this war taking, on around, taking place around us. Jesus, I ask that you would not let us sit on the sidelines. You would not leave us sleepily doing the devil's will in our lives as is so tempting for us. Jesus, that you would wake us up into active service in your army, which is a peaceful army, an army that loves enemies but gets violent towards sin. Help us not to play at being Christians. Help us to get deadly serious in this fight for what is good, what is true, what is beautiful and praiseworthy for what is yours, King Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.